Let's open our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 12. You'll see my, my title on the screen behind me. Anybody ever heard the, the little slogan or catchphrase or whatever it may be, a little cliche, um, new year, new me? Anybody ever heard that before? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. It makes me cringe every time I hear that. I hate that phrase so much. It just makes me just die inside a little bit. But I wanted to go off of that and look at what the Bible says about what it means to have an inner renewal. Uh, the Bible does use that word about renewing ourselves and that God is doing a work in us. You know, New Year's Day is a unique holiday culturally because many of us consciously or subconsciously treat January 1 as sort of this reset button. You guys know what I'm talking about? You may not even think about it. We use the word New Year resolution, all that stuff, but even subconsciously, I think we think to ourselves like, okay, it's a new year. I'm pressing some sort of a personal reset button. Everyone's trying to reinvent themselves, whether it be making better health choices or dietary things or maybe exercising to a certain degree or social media habits or some sort of spiritual goal. We're always trying to reinvent ourselves around this time every year. And I'm not saying that's all bad. I'm just saying it's sort of a, a present reality. It's this involuntary sort of reset button that we place or press in our culture. You know, the Bible doesn't have much to say about reinventing ourselves, sort of a glow up as you may hear in our culture, but it has plenty to say about God's ongoing work of renewing us and transforming us and growing us and starting and bringing to completion a work in us, Philippians 1.6, right? The Bible has a lot to say about that. And so as we enter 2023, this morning, January 1, I wanted to look at God's work of renewal in our lives from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And by the way, next week we're going to resume Hebrews, uh, but today I wanted to look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, and seize this opportunity to take advantage of this sort of personal reset button that we're pressing. Chapter 12 in Romans, starting in verses 1 and 2, says this, Paul writing to the church in Rome, and more of a, a broad letter that will circulate, says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." The word renewal, you saw it in there, right? Renewing your mind. That word renewal, it means to be remade into what God originally and forever intended for mankind and for you. God created us for vertical adoration, fellowship, and worship. You've kind of seen a theme already this morning. Why did God make you? For his glory, right? He made you for his glory. He wants to be praised and adored and celebrated and fellowshiped with and worshiped. He's not trying to renew us to be better people, but rather to be better vessels of doing what we were designed to do, worship him. That's what a renewal is all about, is returning to the design that God intended for humanity when he created us. We may use the word worship, and you may immediately, can't even help it maybe, think about singing songs or at least being in church. But that word worship is not just a church word. It's a lifestyle word. That's not just a church word. It's not just what happens in this building. It's a lifestyle Word And God created you not just to worship here, but to worship everywhere, to praise God, adore him, fellowship with him, love him. 
So I'm going to leave you with a couple of things this morning, keeping that in mind, this thing of, this idea of worshiping God with who we are. The number one is this, to choose worship in all emotions, words, and actions. Notice all there. You can say in or through, really, but to worship God through or in all emotions, words, and actions. That's simply my way of saying, in all that you do, do all things for the glory of God. In everything, to do all things to praise and worship God. Now, when I say choose worship, that should stand out because worship sometimes must be a choice because you just don't feel like it, right? Sometimes you feel like doing the opposite of what is worshipful. But choice, sometimes even despite feelings, is what worship requires. The book of Romans is a letter, you may already know that, a letter by the Apostle Paul written to the church in Rome, churches really in Rome, and obviously it would go beyond Rome because we're reading it today, 2,000 years later. But it's also a letter of chief doctrine. It's, It's got a lot of doctrinal things in there, and it's not so situational and pointed to what's going on in the church in Rome, but instead saying very generally, these things are true of what it means to follow Jesus and what's in our hearts today. We pick up in chapter 12, and I hate to do that. I'm I'm obviously a a fan of preaching through an entire book of the Bible, but to jump into Romans 12, verse 1, requires us to skip over a lot of the book of Romans, right? We're skipping 11 chapters. And so as we pick up here, it even begins with, I appeal to you, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore. That word, therefore, must require us to look backwards. He's saying this appeal is in light of all the things that I've said already. All those chapters 1 through 11, therefore, this. In chapters 1 through 11, all the way towards the end of chapter 11, I'm going to summarize, but what Paul has essentially said is he's laid out the condition of mankind. He skipped over, or we were skipping over verses, or chapter 3, verse 23, that says all people sin. Chapter 6, verse 23, that says that we fall short of the glory of God. Not just that, but the wages of that are death. And so my way of just summarizing that is to say all people are condemned. He even says, without distinction, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, whatever you look like, You are condemned before a holy God. But with that condemnation comes separation. However, he has been very intentional to talk about salvation has been offered to those who stand condemned. God has offered rescue, redemption, salvation. The word condemnation is a judicial term. It means guilty, right? Someone that stands guilty. But later in this, or after he talks about condemnation, he goes straight forward and says, but the good news of the gospel is that you can be justified. Another judicial term, the opposite of condemnation, where you may stand condemned before a holy God, you can be justified, made right before him, a declaration of righteousness. Even if we don't always match that description, we are made righteous because of the work of Jesus. He talks about redemption, the purchase of sinners in Romans 3, the propitiation for sin, which is the payment that reverses us from being recipients of the wrath of God to the favor of God. And I'll say all that to say, in chapter 1 through chapter 11, he has summarized the good news of the gospel. It has come to you. And so Paul makes an appeal in verse 1 of chapter 12 to Roman believers. He says, by the mercies of God. You see that in verse 1, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. He says, my appeal is on the grounds of the mercies of God, okay? By the mercies of God, he says, which is sort of a weird phrase. What does he mean by that, the mercies of God? Now, obviously, we know God's mercy is always around us in every way, right? But what does he mean by this phrase, by the mercies of God? 
Well, you can look back at it if you want. It's not going to be on the screen behind me, but in chapter 11, verses 30 through 32, you can skim that and see that he uses the word mercy a couple of times. In those verses, Paul talks about God sovereignly using the disobedience and rejection of the gospel in Israel as a means of pushing the gospel out to the Gentiles, to the Roman world. And so what Paul is saying to Rome is saying, It's God's mercy that the gospel ever even came to you. He used the rejection of the Jews to bring the gospel to you. That's that's mercy, right? That's God's mercy to you. He uses it three times there in chapter 11, 30 through 32. He uses it one time here to simply say the gospel has undeservedly come to Rome. And certainly we could say the gospel has undeservedly come to all of us. Amen? So he makes an appeal. He says, by the mercies of God, meaning the mercy of the gospel getting to you, that Jesus has given his life for you, that you may have eternal life, his appeal is this. Since he's given his life to you, you give yourselves to him. He uses the words living sacrifice. Give yourse- he's given himself to you, eternal life. Now you, my appeal to you is to give yourself to him. But he uses that word living sacrifices sacrifices. Now, we may read that already and think spiritually, but literally speaking, that's a weird word to use, is it not? A living sacrifice. I want to talk about this. While we may immediately hear that word and think of the figurative sense and maybe spiritual sacrificing, that word would have originally been read literally. They would think of sacrifices of animals, bulls, and goats, and birds, etc. So those were instructed by God in the book of Leviticus as a means of ceremonially atoning for sin. And by the way, not just in Israel, but Many people groups, including the Roman Empire, they knew about sacrifices to even pagan gods. Why? What was the deal with sacrifices? And we talked about this a lot in Hebrews. Consider this my segue into next week as we begin this conversation about all these sacrifices and things. But in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, and why is sacrifices such a big deal? God gave them for this reason. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In other words, God gave the sacrificial system because death was required. A life for a life, a death for a death. It was either that or Israel bear the consequences of their own sin. Eternal condemnation. Instead, he said, I'm going to give you a system of a death for a death, a life for a life. And although those sacrificial animals did not have true saving power in them, by making those sacrifices— Old Testament saints anticipated a sacrifice that would have final saving power. Who is that? Jesus, right? He says this later in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, when it says, And every priest stands at his service, meaning the person offering these sacrifices of all these animals, offering repeatedly, listen to this, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered, notice the past tense, For all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Here's what that means. That Jesus finished. That's why he said, it is finished. He finished the job that Old Testament sacrifices could never accomplish. So here's the question. If Jesus is the one that actually did something, his sacrifice actually meant something, then were the Old Testament saints just wasting their time by making these sacrifices? The answer is no. Why? Because they were worshiping God. God gave them that and said, this is your way to worship and trust that I'm going to do something to actually pay for your sin. They were worshiping God and trusting that he once and for all, for all, offer a lasting and perfect sacrifice. So listen, if Old Testament sacrifices were a means of worship, then what do you think Paul means by saying to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice? Worship. 
it's a long, a drawn out way of me saying, if a sacrifice in the Old Testament was for the sake of worship, then what do you think Paul means by saying, be a sacrifice? He means to live a lifestyle of worship. Now, obviously, he's not saying a literal bloody demonstration of your allegiance to God. It's an oxymoron after all, isn't it? He says, present your bodies. Now, listen, if he just said present your bodies as a sacrifice, that would be a bloody demonstration, would it not? If everybody in this room presented their bodies as a sacrifice, we wouldn't be labeled as a church. We'd be labeled as a cult, right? Because that would be a bloody demonstration of some horrific allegiance, right? But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say present your bodies as a sacrifice. He says present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's weird because a sacrifice by definition is dead. But Paul is saying we're flipping this this sort of office on its head, this whole ceremonial thing on its head by saying, no, you're not going to die for him. You're going to live for him. You see, you're going to live for him. It means a whole person's demonstration of living allegiance, worshipful surrender. You know, elsewhere God talks about this, even apart from Paul. God doesn't say to come and literally be killed, but for all who follow Jesus, he does call for us to come and die to living for ourselves. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, 24 through 25, it says, he says, if anyone would come after me, what does he say? Let him deny himself, take up his cross. What do people do on crosses? They die. But he's not talking about dying. He's talking about living. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And it may cost someone their life, but he is simply saying not that everyone will die for him, but that everyone must die to self to live for him. That's what it says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul's alive though, isn't he? How can he say he's been crucified? Isn't that dead? He's saying he is a living sacrifice. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave a life for me. I give my life for him. His instruction, his appeal is to be a living and breathing sacrifice, a life of devoted, ongoing, living worship. He says to present your bodies. Now, that doesn't just mean your physical self. It's it's Paul's way of saying all of who you are. He says, present your bodies, not just your physical flesh. He means present your body, mind, and soul, your entire self. And that's where I've gotten that first point that I mentioned just a moment ago, that all emotions, words, actions, all of who you are, to give it to him. This appeal is not a call to give your body in death necessarily, but a call to give your entire self and life. Worship is to honor, love, and embrace God and his desire for you. I'm going to say that one more time. To worship, it means to embrace, to love, and honor God and his desire for you. Whatever that looks like, it may look like a vocation. It may look like not saying that thing, but saying this thing. Whatever God's desire is, in and out of every single moment, of every single day, worship is choosing to honor him instead of honoring me. That's worship. It's changing who you live for. In every role that you play, as a spouse, as a parent, as a church member, as a worker, as a, as a, a nurse or a teacher or a plumber, whatever it is that you do as a son or a daughter, in every role, be a worshiper. When? All the time. All the time. God did not create the seven-day calendar and suggest that worship would be your weekend plans. I'm going to say that again. God didn't just say, okay, Sundays are the day that you're going to be a worshiper. That's silly, is it not? 
God created your life to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, worshipful to him. You want to talk about a good New Year resolution, a good mantra in 2023? Worship inside and outside of this building. That's a good mantra. To be a worshiper everywhere that you go. In your marriage. It means getting along and not getting a divorce is not the aim of your marriage. Worship is the aim of your marriage. Keeping the kids well-fed and well-behaved is not the aim of parenting. Worship is the aim of parenting. Pulling a paycheck is not the aim of your vocation. Worship is the aim of your job. Worship is the aim of the way that you treat other people created in the image of God. Not keeping the peace, loving them, caring for them, worshiping God through loving them. Worship is the aim of your perspective on things like sex or things like money and fill in the blank. Worship is the aim of the way that you view food and your time and your phone and your social media and your entertainment. Are you a worshiper? Or are you just floating through life, reserving worship for the weekends? God created you for more. He created you to be a living sacrifice. But here's the thing. If that's all I got for you today, then this is a really bad sermon. Because all that I've said so far really is to go do better. <laughs> that's weak, man. I got to do better than that. Go try harder. Go This year you got it, right? How many times have you told yourself that? This year I got it. I'm going to say no to all sugar, please, right? What a terrible message that would be to go and just do better. No, man. The whole point is that you don't got it. That's the whole point of what we're going to see next in verse 2. That's why Paul says that he does not, he says what he does next, that he provides a sort of additional how-to instruction on how we can effectively strive for this mantra of living sacrificial worship, sacrifice of life. The second thing that I want you guys to see is to be transformed, not conformed. To be transformed, not conformed. And obviously, I take that straight from the passage that we're about to look at. To be transformed, not conformed. How do I go and live a life of spiritual worship, this living sacrifice, giving my life to the one who gave his life? It's a strange phrase that we're going to see next. He says, the renewal of your mind. I hear about, like, again, we, we read this with, with 21st century Christian eyes and ears, but that's a really strange word choice. I mean, renewing your mind, it makes me think of like this Eastern meditation yoga kind of thing where it's like, I'm renewing my mind. And you're like humming to yourself. And you know, that's, I get this weird image of that's what this mind metamorphosis is. But that's obviously not what Paul is talking about. He's got something far more precious and far more um, of worth here, right? Look at verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, <coughs> what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, if you were with us on Sunday nights when we were talking about uh, a few weeks ago, I guess a couple of months ago, about our discipleship seminar and how breaking down Paul's letters and how words matter and structure matters, I want you to see something. The aim of what his instruction is in verse 2. Now, don't be conformed, be transformed. The way you do it, renewal of your mind. That by testing. So the result that he's trying to get at is, here's the aim, that you may discern what is the will of God. 
Okay, that's the aim. That's the end goal. He's saying you're trying to see the world differently and discern what is God's will and then go and live in it. What he's saying is, here's what it means to be a living sacrifice, to go and discern how to take God's will and walk in that as opposed to man's will, your will, any other will, and walk in that. In other words, that's the goal. To discern simply means to spiritually perceive and recognize something. He says discern what is God's will. Now, here's the thing. There's two different ways that you can read the word will, God's will. You may say something like, well, you know, Lord willing, I'll wake up tomorrow. Truly, you don't know, right? Truly, you don't know. Lord willing, I won't get in a car accident on the way home today. Truly, you don't know. That is God's sort of hidden and sovereign will. That's not the will here that Paul is talking about. He's talking not about God's sovereign and invisible and unknown will that's absolutely, by the way, going to happen. He's not talking about being a predictor of the future. Go and renew your mind so that you can see into the future and understand what's going to happen next. That's not at all what he's saying. What he's saying is to, to discern and understand what is God's desire. That's his will, his desire for you. And you use this too. I mean, you may see somebody's last will and testament. That doesn't mean their sovereign will. It means what their, their desire is for their stuff whenever they pass on. Parents, you may use your own will for your kids. Your will for your kids as a parent is for them to do well in school, to always have their room clean. Is that always going to happen? No. Because your desire, your will for them may not always come to pass. In fact, it may rarely come to pass. I don't know. But that's your desire for them. It's your will for them. God's example is that it's God's will that you never lie, never steal, never commit adultery, always honor your father and mother. And you could obviously talk about many more instructions that are not in those Ten Commandments. But is that always going to happen? No. We will fall short of the glory of God. We will sin. Because although it's God's will for us, we don't always walk in his will, right? Right? I just want you to see that there's a difference between his sovereign will and his desired will. And what Paul is talking about here is his desire for us, to discern what is his desire for us. And although we may not always walk in it, it is good, acceptable, and perfect, the will of the Lord, as it says in verse 2. So listen, in the context of the entire verse, here's the aim, change your living. In fact, I've got a graphic that I want you guys to see, and that's the aim. Now, I'm leaving those top two things blank because we're going to get there in a second. But the aim, the end goal is to change the way that you live, right? That's what Paul's saying, is that here's what you're going to do. Living sacrifice, go and change your living. The way that he talks about doing that, walking in God's will, discerning what is God's will and walking in that. Know God's desire for your choices and walk in them reason I say that about discerning what is the will of the Lord, and notice, Paul doesn't talk about anything very specifically here. He doesn't talk about your temper. He doesn't talk about your patience. He doesn't talk about uh, the way that you love others. He simply says a blanket statement, discern God's will. You know, the Bible isn't explicit on every single thing. The Bible doesn't say don't bully someone, does it? But I think that we can infer that that's a bad idea. The Bible doesn't say to give someone a hand gesture to someone riding your bumper, But I think that we can discern that that's a bad idea because we can discern what is the will. All I'm trying to say is we can discern what is the will of the Lord, right? A spiritually renewed mind, although God's word may not speak on every specific thing, a spiritually renewed mind and transformed heart discerns and perceives what is the desired will of God in those moments and walks in them. Here's the formula. The aim is what you see at the bottom down there. The aim is to change my living to discern what is God's desire for me and walk in it. But here's the thing, to do that, to change the way that we live, 
ideally, we must first change the way that we feel. That's the second thing that goes a little bit above that, to change my feeling, to change my feeling. And we may say, well, feelings can be deceiving. Yeah, you're right. It's hard to get there, right? That your feelings may match up with God's feelings. But that's what he means by a transformed heart. Don't be conformed to the world, but be yourself a transformed person. Your whole self morphed, changed. But to do that, you have to go one back, and that is the top thing, and that is to change my thinking. To change my thinking. And that's what he means by a renewed mind. That if we change our thinking, there will come a day, Lord willing, that we will change our feeling, and we will change our living. Now, here's the thing. You may not always feel like obeying God, but if you change your thinking, you can say, though I don't feel like this yet, I will make a conscious decision to change the way that I'm living. And again, prayerfully, one day, God will change my heart, right? Transformation. But I think that here you see a neat formula, and you can read it again in verse 2. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed. How do you do it? Renewing your mind. You see the formula, right? Renewing your mind produces a transformed heart, and then by testing, you will be able to discern what is the will of God. I want you to notice one thing here, and that is that this change— by the way, this is behind every spiritual goal that you've ever had. You know that, right? This is behind every spiritual goal that you have ever had is this formula. And it's not easy, but I want you to see something here. It is that that transformation does not happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. You can't get that bottom part if you are not renewing what's here, renewing your mind. Change happens from the inside out, not the other way around. A renewed way of thinking and seeing is the engine of a renewed way of living. Now, I think all the things that I just said are understandable, but man, are they hard to apply. Am I right? Those are so hard to apply, those things. And Christians, at least Christians by name, absolutely stink at changed living. Christians, I'm going to say at least by name, and I would say that all of us in here, to some extent, are not good at changing the way that we live. It's hard, is it not? It's hard to be sanctified to live a lifestyle that is just simply set apart and different. I'll say it this way. If Christians were being transformed by the renewal of their minds, then there wouldn't be this cultural stigma of Christians and non-Christians being morally indistinguishable from one another. Do you think the church stands out from the world in the United States of America? Sometimes, but I don't know about you, but my Facebook feed is full of people that claim to know Jesus and don't sound or post anything similar to those that don't walk with him. I guess they sound about the same. I was golfing recently um, by myself, but not by myself. I don't know if you have ever golfed in like a big public course, but sometimes they pair you with people that you don't even know. And for some of you guys, it's like my social anxiety can't handle that, okay? Because you're with them for like four and a half hours. And I was with these three random guys, and they were from Arkansas, and we were playing golf together. And so um, I meet random people all the time because look at my job, right? I had to meet all of you randomly one, once upon a time. And so I, it wasn't a big deal to me. I just started kind of visiting with them. But they don't know me, right? They don't know that I'm a pastor. They don't know that I'm a Christian. They just know that I'm a guy that can't golf very well. That's all they know about me. And so we got through two or three holes together. And again, we're talking, you know, with one another. And uh, I know their names. I know what— um, 
some of their hobby, obviously, they're golfing. I know even some of their vacation, vocations. They've told me some of the things about their life. I know that they're married with children, and they've told me many things. And they, they've asked things about my personal life as far as my family and things like that go. We got to about the fourth hole, which means we've been playing for probably, I don't know, 45 minutes. And then one of the guys says, so what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh, man, I'm sorry for all the cursing. And I was like, that's okay, man. Thanks for saying that, but I'd rather you just be yourself. And he goes, and again, he, he, he was given some, some words is what I'm trying to say. He wasn't a good golfer either. So you pair those things together and you got, you got a storm. I was the best one if that tells you anything, which is not a good thing. And um, after that, he says, I'm sorry for my language. I was like, it's okay, man. Thanks for saying that, but I, I, you know, just be yourself. And he goes, and this is my favorite part. He says, well, I'm a Baptist too. <laughs> and I was like, typical, man. <laughs> so typical. And I didn't obviously trace that rabbit, but I thought about it this morning while I was uh, looking at my message. I just thought, man, I, I think about that because I don't know. There is this stigma of people that claim Christ in our culture that simply don't look anything like him. They don't look a thing like They're morally indistinguishable from the culture. It didn't shock me when he told me I'm a Baptist because I'm like, you talk and act like most Baptists I know. That's not funny. That's sobering. Is it not? There's a problem there. That's an illness in the church. And I think it's because we leave this place, or he leaves his place, or anybody, whatever. They leave a a gathering, a church gathering, a sermon, a worship time, whatever, without a plan, and relying on a terrible strategy. And here's the strategy. I'm going to go try harder. I'm going to go try harder. Good sermon. I believe the things you said. Now I'm going to go give it a better effort. Terrible strategy. Motivation is unpredictable and uncontrollable. Motivation is unpredictable and uncontrollable. If you have ever set a dietary new year resolution, you know that's true. Because you don't feel motivated, right? You never know what your motivation is going to be. You don't wake up in the morning most days and say, exercise is number one today. You're not so motivated most days, are you not? Motivation's hard because it's unpredictable. You can't control your own motivation, but you can control your discipline. While motivation is unpredictable and uncontrollable, discipline, self-control is predictable and controllable. You can make a choice Not that you're going to be motivated, you can't control that, but you can make a choice whether or not you're going to be disciplined. Do you understand? It's a very important distinction to make. Motivation is fickle, it rises and falls, but discipline is entirely in your control. And listen, go try harder next time is not a good strategy. I'm going to be disciplined by renewing my mind much better. And you may still fail, but that's that's some pretty good legs to stand on. Guys, you and your lost friends should have different standards for the way that you speak. You and your lost friends should have different convictions regarding the media that you are taking in. You and your lost friends should have different convictions, standards for the way that you manage your time and your money. Should have different convictions and standards for the way that you handle conflict with those with whom you have issues, for the way that 
you even uh, work when your boss isn't around, for the ways that you engage in discussions with people on the other side of issues, whether it be political issues or the sexual revolution or anything else, the way that you engage with people that are different than you should be different than the way that the world engages with people that are different than them. We should look different. The Bible's word for that is holy. It means that when you engage the discussion with someone who is on the left, far, far left, you don't say things like, I hate to even say this in the pool. I just feel like I have to say these things. You don't call them a snowflake. You don't call them a libtard. And you don't chant things like, let's go, Brandon. Is that Christ honoring? Of course not. And I'm not saying that we should sympathize and be with any perspective that is contrary to Scripture. I'm simply saying, act like a Christian. Be worshipful. And for goodness sake, represent as an ambassador of Jesus, not Satan, being divisive and ruinous. we got to do better than that. It means that we're different from the world in the way that we spend our weekends. It means that we're different in the way that we prioritize our children's church involvement. You don't give your kids a choice on whether or not they go to school or what their bedtime is because they may not see it clearly now, but you know best, right? Why treat church something more vital to their eternity than school like they are responsible enough to know what is best for them? Care enough about their soul to do what is best for them even when there is resistance. You apply that rule to other things. Apply it to church. I'm not saying that's easy, but the easy thing and the right thing are rarely the same thing. If you aren't being transformed by God, which is what it says in Romans 12 too, if you aren't being transformed by God, Paul pulls no punches. He simply says, if you're not doing this, you're being conformed to the world. If you're not being transformed to look more like Jesus, you are being conformed to look more like the world around you. That's scary. There's no such thing as staying in the middle. You are either running after Christ or you are sliding away from him. Drifting. Do you remember that? We talked about that in Hebrews. Drifting. And the same is true for your children. If they are not being transformed to look more like Christ, they are being conformed to look more like the world. If you're not willing to disciple them, I promise you their friends, their peers, their cell phones are down for the cause. The same is true for your marriage. If you're not pouring the gasoline of spiritual fire onto your marriage, it is going to simply erode and conform into the world. Serious business, church. Blood-bought followers of Jesus are instruments of daily worship. And the goal of that, and again, I'm not saying it's easy, but the goal is that bottom part. It's changed living. It's walking in God's will. But that can't happen if God is not transforming our hearts. But don't miss this. It's the whole thing I want you to see. And that is that that can't happen without renewing your mind. Pouring something into your mind that is going to bring renewal to you, not decay. Again, a renewed way of thinking and seeing is the engine of a new way of living. There's a great illustration of this in the New Testament. 
It's in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And you may not be familiar with this, but I want you to hear this. It should be on the screen behind me. It says this. This is Paul talking to Timothy, talking to a young man about looking more like Jesus. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. He says, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, he says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard the good deposit, the thing that's been put in you. Guard that thing. Be careful what you're depositing, because from that, you will be withdrawing, I think is what Paul's getting at. Whatever you're putting in, from that you will take out. There's a bank analogy there, right? There's a banking analogy. And if you're old enough to understand what this is getting at, then kind of follow me here. The bank analogy is that every thought, word, and action is a withdrawal. You are pulling out. You're faced with the crossroads. Am I going to say this thing or this thing? What are you going to withdraw from that? And withdrawals always come from what has been deposited. And listen, if all that we're depositing is social media, television, terrible friendships that influence bad conversations that tear us down rather than build us up, if we're constantly pouring those things into our minds, then what do you think is going to happen when it comes out? You can only withdraw from what you deposit. So instead, consider and discipline yourself for what you're depositing. Discipline yourself for what social media habits you have. Discipline your television habits. Discipline what kind of friendships and influence you have in your life. Discipline, are my conversations tearing me down or building me up? Are they speaking life to me or are they bringing decay to me? What kind of circle do I have? And most importantly, of all the deposits that we bring to our heads, am I depositing conversations with the Most High God? Am I depositing prayer into my mind? Am I depositing scripture intake? Do you think scripture is going to come out if it's not being put in? That's just silly. Why would you think otherwise? Do you think that God is going to come out if God is not being put in? Transformation will not occur if mind renewal is not occurring. If mind decay is coming, conformity to the world will come soon after that. Do you deposit springs of life or springs of decay? Every thought, word, and action is a withdrawal. And so the question is simply, what are you withdrawing? Is it an indicator of what you're depositing? I think one strategy, some of you guys have small children, and I say small children, that's not even true just of small children. I mean of kids that are teenagers, and maybe even most importantly of teenagers, especially teenage girls. You need to feel like you can ask your daughter or your son, whether they're teenage, even down to small children, what's in your heart right now? You see this, you talk about a pandemic. There is a pandemic that is taking over the globe of small, and I'm going to say teenage kids that are growing up depressed, terribly mentally ill. And of course, it all goes back to social media. But man, you parents need to take the opportunity to simply ask your child and just say, tell me what's in your heart. Just tell me what's in your heart. That conversation can go a million directions, but they need to feel safe simply unloading to you and saying, I'm struggling. I'm really depressed. I don't know why I feel this way. I'm sad all the time. There's this relationship that I don't know what to do with it. 
And that simple question of what's in your heart can go so many ways. And it's so simple that a small child can answer that question. Because we got to get out in front of that and say, if we're going to be renewing the minds of our kids, trusting God to do that work, but certainly being responsible to be stepping into it, then you got to have access to the minds of your kids. I'm not saying that's easy, but you can't settle for the status quo of saying they got their space. Ah, teenagers will be teenagers. Come on. There's an opportunity there, and we have to seize it. And the same is true for spouses. Don't settle for the status quo of saying you're more like roommates than life partners. Ask each other, what's in your heart right now? What was in your heart today? How you doing? If you're going to be part of the process of discipling one another and renewing one another's minds, that starts in your mind. Before it can turn into life change, it must turn into what is being deposited into your head. This is serious stuff, y'all. I think there's a whole lot of application there. But I want to look at one more thing. And there's some, I guess, descriptors here. I'm going to reread our passage, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, here they are, living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then it goes on to say, do not conform to this world, transform and renew your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Good, acceptable, perfect, holy. Guys, I don't know about you, but those are not words that define me. And we're talking about all these things, and I'll be honest, I think that some of the things that I've already said this morning should reveal to you that you ain't perfect either. That we struggle with this, do we not? The reason I say that is that those words, good, acceptable, and perfect, they have only ever truly defined one man. And it is not anybody in this room and anybody on this globe. It is one man who sits on high in a throne. It's Jesus. And I want everyone in this room to hear this, to be reminded that you stand redeemed, justified, not condemned, not because you can live a life that is good and acceptable and pleasing and perfect, but because Jesus already did and he paid it all for you. So when you fall short this week, today, this afternoon, this evening, when you fall short, be reminded that your standing before a holy God isn't contingent on your behavior. It's contingent on that God who sent Jesus into this world that you may not perish, but have eternal life. And if you don't know him this morning, and this is, by the way, a very sanctifying message for those that are in Christ. But if you're here today and you want to just get back into the church thing because it's been lacking and you have truly never made a decision to follow Jesus in faith, I'm telling you something today. And that is that you may stand condemned when you enter this place, but before you leave, you can stand justified. That if you can, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he bore your sin so that you could bear eternity with him. If you confess that with your mouth, then he is good and just, merciful to save. Today, I think that there's a lot of response for us at church. I'm not all about the new year, new me, but I certainly think that God can do a renewal in each one of us. So, in 2023, will you join me in committing to that reality?